16 says, Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city of the, in the gate. And the father of the young, young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I didn't find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet, this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Essentially, this, this cloak uh, amounts to evidence that the woman wasn't pregnant before consummating the marriage, right? So if that's the case, here's what he's saying. Then if that's the case, then this man has falsely accused her. And then the action, the judgment is to go against the man who falsely accused this woman. This is a, a major charge against this woman and her reputation and her family's reputation, including the, the father who would have been in charge of her during especially the betrothal period when this pregnancy would have supposedly by this man happened. So it's a major charge against a woman and her family. And so if this is a false charge, verse 18, the elders of the city shall take the man and whip him, and they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel and she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all of his days. Now, no doubt when we read this, it sounds like a hard situation for this woman. Now she's going to be stuck with this man who would give this false charge against her because he hates her. And undoubtedly, that's going to be some serious work for them to have a good marriage from this point. But I think this comment helps. One says this, that the law takes the view that the security and provision of a household, even in the home of such a man, is preferable to the insecurity of a divorced woman that nobody else is likely to marry. Again, we need to remember that Moses is giving laws and addressing a very broken situation with a view towards the best we can taking care to protect the vulnerable woman in this situation. And so, yeah, it sounds hard, but we're, we're trying to bring some sense of help to a very troubled situation. But in verse 20, the scenario flips. If the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman. And again, if true is a, a key statement, right? The people of Israel, the people of God should really care about the truth. The truth matters to God. The truth should matter to his people. And if it's true, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house and the men of the city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Sexual morality, it's, it's repeatedly called for, you need to purge this sin from your midst. 22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, this is more sexual morality that needs to be purged. Both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Verse 23, if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The, the latter scenario is assuming that had she had cried out for help, there would have been help available. It was less likely to have secluded hotel rooms where no one could hear what was going on in Israel in their camp and in their midst. And so there's this assumption that's going on here that help would have been available. But that's not true everywhere, so verse 25 addresses that. If in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. 
But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor, because he has met her in the open country. And though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. Again, there's out in the open, and there is the assumption that there was a cry for help, and and no one was around. And so the, the punishment is brought on to the man. And finally, we kind of round out one more kind of rape scenario in chapter 22 in verse 28. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. And likely the penalty here is a little bit different because there's no break of relationship that was already there, like one that was betrothed in the earlier cases. And again, we get to this place where it sounds like, man, now this woman is going to have to stay with this man. And that seems like a hard situation, but it protects her and any child born from her and actually gives her ongoing provision. Do you remember the story of, of Amnon and Tamar in 2nd Thess- Samuel chapter 13? Amnon loved, not the kind of love, godly love, his sister Tamar, and he rapes her. And then looks what, look what happens. Verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. So that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And he said to her, get up and go. And notice what she says. This gives us a, a, an understanding of the situation that young women would have been in should this be going on in Israel. Notice what she says. No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. So one wrong is is greater. And and what Moses is trying to do is say, let's not move into greater wrong here. Let's make sure that that woman is provided for and protected on an ongoing way and not worse may happen. And in verse 30, one last scenario of sexual morality is addressed. 22 verse 30, a man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. And this seems... uh, like a far stretch, but we think about, again, they're addressing reality, and, and likely what this was, was a stepmother, and, and likely, again, while there might have been in our day and times, like moms and dads have a, a decent distance of, age, distance of age, that may not have been true here. And so, like, this is a, a serious scenario, something that Moses needed to speak to. But, I mean, we get to the end of, of chapter 22, Two, and that this entire section of sexual immorality exists shows how far we've come from Eden, shows the extent of the brokenness present in, in Israel, and, and the sexual immorality. It just litters their history everywhere. Judah and Tamar. Reuben takes his father's right concubine, Bilhah. And we could go on and on with the sexual immorality that's present in the people of Israel from very early on. It's all over their history. It litters every corner of it almost. Their brokenness is everywhere. And that brokenness brings on hardship for men and women and families all through. It causes much havoc. And here's these laws. Here's what these laws are doing. They're seeking to mitigate that brokenness, to protect the vulnerable as best they can, and to promote purity in their midst. They're purging this so that they don't have to continue to deal with these things. These laws aim at keeping some semblance of the family and sexual morality intact in their midst. And God is so concerned about sexual morality within his people because God is the one who designed sex. 
and marriage and family. And this good design from this good creator, this ordering that he has given, is for the flourishing of his people, for the flourishing of man and woman and their offspring. It's for the flourishing of all of the things that he has created and called good. And so sexual immorality has to be purged because it rages against God's good design that he had given in the beginning. And what's permissible in terms of sexual immorality and sexual morality in the arena of sexual morality reveals more than just cultural boundary markers, more than just even physical boundaries and physical lines that we could draw. What's permissible in terms of sexual immorality, because it's God's design, reveals one's heart toward God and his image bearers. And so always this place of sexual morality from the beginning got fraught with much difficulty and perversion and continues on today because it's God's design and because it reveals our hearts for God. This is going to be a place that's going to be a constant spiritual battleground. It's always going to be a place of spiritual contention. Sexual morality is always going to be on the target of the enemy. Let's aim there because it destroys so much if it's perverted. Undoubtedly, the enemy who loves to steal, kill, and destroy has his fingerprints all over this arena. It's why it is so perverted in almost every point of history that you can look to. And adding into sexual morality, confusion, or temptation, or even more sin into God's good design wreaks havoc for the people that are caught up in it. It destroys so many good things that God has given and ordered. And if we look around... The carnage that has been created by sexual immorality is just evident everywhere, all over. Sexual immorality litters our history too. We look in our own lives and we can see the carnage of sexual immorality that may not be completely obvious to those on the outside, but we know the toll that it has taken on our lives and on our souls but the truth is, is God's good design is better and sexual immorality, though evident everywhere, though has inflicted much pain, does not have to be the last word. More powerful than the brutal reality of sexual immorality and all the brokenness in its wake is the gospel. Paul looks to Eden and the pronouncements made there. The good pronouncements of man and woman. And that for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and cleave and hold fast to his wife. He looks back at that Edenic pronouncement and he says of that, that's a profound mystery. Paul, pretty smart guy, he doesn't say a lot is really mysterious. Like he has a lot and has figured out a lot for us. And he looks back at that and he says, wow, that's, that's mysterious. That's profoundly mysterious mysterious. And, and I say that it's pointing to, to more than just that thing. It's pointing to, yes, through his vantage point, looking back, Christ in the church. So sex and, and marriage and family, they're, they're remnants of Eden, and they point beyond themselves, Paul says, to the love that exists between God and his people, Christ and his church. They point to the love of God for us in Christ. They point to the love of God for sexual sinners like us. So in other words, immorality is not the last word for those in Jesus. The gospel is stronger and more powerful than that. We read this in, in 1 Corinthians. Love this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter or 6, verse 9. Do you not know? Again, Paul was dealing with some of these very same issues that Deuteronomy addresses in the Corinthian church. But here's what he says to them. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And we need to own that. There's our sexual brokenness right there. And we, we can own that because of what's coming. You, you can own this and turn from it because of what he says next. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is our history. That, that list is our history. We can locate ourselves there, but that is who we, if we're in Christ, if we've trusted in him, that is who we were. Because our sexual brokenness is not the last word. The gospel gets the last word. Such were some of you, but you were now. Here's the last word for us. Washed, sanctified, justified. We didn't do it. It's because of Jesus. It's what he has done. If our life is littered with sexual sin, and we know from our own existence, from our experience, like it is then we can know that justification is offered to us in Jesus who can wash us, who can clean us, who can justify us so that we can turn from those who were those things to those who are now justified in Christ Jesus. Amen. So that in Jesus we know now, 1 Corinthians six thirteen, that our body is not made for sexual morality, but for the Lord. We are now bought with a price so that we can honor God with our bodies. So there needs to be no confusion among God's people. There is a place for us to land with our sexual immorality and perversion. It's in Jesus. We turn from it and we let him take it and cleanse us of it. We turn away from it as those who are now justified and cleansed in him. And we walk away from it knowing that now I've been bought with a price and I'm not my own. So I'm going to honor God with my body now. I don't need to give myself to those things anymore. Like the, my body's not made for things, those things anymore. It's made for the Lord. So there should be no confusion among us as God's people. If you're in Christ, here's what he says of us. That sexual immorality should not be named among you, Ephesians 5.3. Or 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is God's will for you. Your sanctification. He wants you to be holy. And here he'll spell it out a little bit more. That you abstain from sexual immorality. It's part of our holiness. The, the gospel, what it does is it... it it gives us a, a greater, deeper, truer, longer identity than our sexual immorality, than our sin. It delivers us from the power of sexual sin so that we can no longer walk in sexual immorality, but walk in the will of God, which is our sanctification. We can walk in holiness. That's a better word for us. And that was God's aim for Israel. He wanted them to be holy. He, he repeats it over and over again. Be holy. Be holy. Here's some areas to be holy. He has always designed men and women to be holy, to even walk in sexual purity throughout their days. He repeatedly calls them to this. And the law, what it's doing is it's promoting holiness in their midst. Holiness in God's people is so important that God is careful with who is included as part of that people. That's where we turn in chapter 23. He's careful with who enters into the assembly of the Lord. And that phrase, the assembly of the Lord, that you'll see in 23.1 and, and following through 23.1 through 8. Assembly of the Lord is a worshiping community. It, it is used when Israel as a whole is gathered before the Lord at Sinai, hearing from the Lord, 
receiving his law, going through the, the, the ritual of worship and, and covenant commitment to him, it was from those who were redeemed by God. The object of their spiritual worship was the Lord. He was the one who was receiving their worship. He was the one who was honored as one who had pulled them out of Egypt and given them his good word. And so the assembly of the Lord seems to be this people of Israel gathered in the presence of God as a worshiping people. This assembly that he's going to speak of in 23 looks forward to when Israel is going to gather in Jerusalem at the place within the place for worship, for festivals, for sacrifice, for the hearing of the word in God's presence. And so what I think is going on here is that the assembly of the Lord that he's going to address in chapter 23 is narrower than just those who are dwelling within the promised land. That there would be people within the promised land that would be, in a sense, resident aliens. And I think that the assembly of the Lord is a little bit more narrow than just the people that were in their midst. And within that, people in the promised land even to the assembly, there is some exclusion in this assembly. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 23, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. I know you have been waiting for an explanation on this. Like these are the verses that as as junior high kids, we we giggle at the whole time and wonder why they're in there. But the reality is, is that this was known in the ancient Near East. And it was known in connection with cultic temples, pagan worship. And again, like the cross-dressing that we saw in chapter 22, this is cutting against God's design, isn't it? God created male and female, and he calls them good. In other words, he created specifics there, distinctions there, and he called them good. And so this is cutting against that. And so both the rejection of God in worship, which is likely what he's aiming at as well with this, and the rejection of God's good design in distinctness of gender, which is also going on here, whatever is primarily in mind, we don't know, but both of those are taking shots at at God and his good order and design in the world. Perhaps both are in mind when he says, don't do this, and that's why they're excluded. He continues in verse 2. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Perhaps this is one born in in the midst of of cultic prostitution or in incest. In other words, these are likely children born outside of marriage, which was God's good design. And even beyond that, another degree in some sort of prohibited relationship outside of that such as some sort of cultic prostitution or again an incestual relationship. In verse 3, he continues with the exclusions. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord God loves you. I love how he just drops that in there in the middle of all this kind of strange explanation. Remember, he did this because he loves you. He loves you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor the Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor the Egyptian because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, I know what you're thinking, likely you biblical scholars out there are thinking, wait a second, Moabites are excluded forever, and yet we know of one very famous Moabite named Ruth, who actually even has a a book of the Bible named after her, so what are we to make 
of Ruth and, and the exclusion from the assembly of the Lord that exists forever. I would just submit to you that there's some complexity here that I'm not sure that we know how to work out fully, or at least I don't. Uh, I think the complexity of the laws that would apply to Ruth and in this situation are difficult. So I, I think we you can listen, I think online, we, we've preached through Ruth, and I think I may have made the error of just kind of oversimplifying the answer to that. I don't think it's a simple answer. And so my encouragement is to just not overly simplify as you think about Ruth and her inclusion in all of this. So here's the possible answers. You, you think, well, well, Ruth, yeah, she was a Moabite, but that was just ethnically, like she turned spiritually, she was an Israelite. And, and that is, of course, true. But if it's just concerning becoming an Israelite, then why is there a difference between the Edomites and just being the third and fourth generation? Why couldn't any generation again just come in as Israel? And why is Moabite not forever, right? Like you, you understand that if it's just a matter of, if it's just a faith matter, then, then why the difference in generations? Why does it say the third generation here and then to the tenth, which is to say forever in another ethnicity? I think that's a difficult question to get around. Or we could just say maybe Ruth was an exception. We're just going to slide her in under the radar. I, that's entirely possible too. The, the exclusions uh, don't simply apply uh, also literally. The, the, notice the symbolic things that are going on here. Edom is this brother. Well, they know this. Like, yeah, kind of. Symbolically, Edom is a, is a brother, right? That would have been, you know, distant relations. But he says he talks to them as if they're brothers, and so they're treated differently. So in other words, there is some symbolic language here too. And, and this is where I think I found the most helpful. Uh, this commentator says this using kind of that symbolic language. He says this, that this law is consistently interpreted, that is the law of exclusion, specifically of, of Moabites, um, is consistently interpreted symbolically rather than literally elsewhere in the scripture. The narrative rationale seems to function as the basis of the law over and against genealogical or ethnic identity. So, in other words, there's some symbolic language going on here, but the law is going to triumph still over genealogy or ethnicity in terms of identity. The law is to win. Boaz, certainly as he uh, pursues Ruth, I think clearly takes her as one who is not excluded from the assembly of the Lord. And perhaps we could say, Here's one who has way more authority on the issue than we do, as one who would have understood these things well, and actually seems to be a really righteous man, and looks in the right way towards what's going on, and given the description that he gives there, his interpretation of this law is probably the best one, and he certainly doesn't see her as excluded. But we don't know how he got there, necessarily. There's not an explanation on how he justified her inclusion into the assembly of the Lord. Maybe, as this author goes on to say, that maybe Boaz had a, an idea of Ruth as Paul does of Israel. Listen to this next comment. This symbolic identity could mark in a similar fashion as Israel does for Paul. Just as not all Israel is Israel, not all Moabites are Moabites. And so perhaps Ruth is a Moabite of Moabites. Right? Like she's in a different category. She fits the different category of what a Moabite is. All that to say is that this case reminds us that these exclusions and, the, and their details like, are just not spelled out for us. Perhaps they're a barrier for Israel to say, be careful 
with just letting someone into this assembly, that that doesn't then hurt the assembly and what's going on here because of their lack of sincerity in their faith and covenant to God. Perhaps it's just laid down as judgment against these nations. Certainly there's some tone of that. Perhaps there's a different reason for these exclusions that we don't know. It's another place to acknowledge that God knows and that he gives these things because he loves Israel for their good and that he is one who can be trusted. And so even if we don't understand all the explanations, we can say, well, God is God. He's the one who's speaking. We're lucky that we're even alive in his speech. So let's submit to him in his word here. The idea of God excluding any, though, seems to be a completely repugnant thought in our culture, doesn't it? And that God would have this list, even a detailed list of certain nations that would be excluded, lands as harsh. But again, even for us, God is God. We are not him. And part of our explanation, part of the explanation I'd give to you, part of the explanation for ourselves and that we could give to others in the midst of all these exclusions that God have, because we don't have a full answer, because we can't explain it and justify every single detail of it, is to say, you need to take that to the Lord. I'm sure he can handle all of our questions. I'm sure he can handle other people's questions. Say, like, you need to wrestle with him about that and see if you can't work it out. But at the same time, part of our explanation in response to this is to say, let's also look at the full picture that we have of God. I'll point us to one spot in Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah looks forward to a different day, and he says this in verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, a better better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these things I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And the Lord who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Let's make sure that when we explain all these things, we, we bring the fullness of the picture of God that we have. And although we don't know how to explain every area, here's what we know about God. He looks forward to this day when he says, oh yeah, some of those things I talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 23, there's a day coming, all of them are included, and they're included in unique ways. Names better than sons and daughters, you're not a dry tree anymore. Look at the hope and the goodness in God in that. He looks forward to their full inclusion. This Isaiah 56 is, is inclusive exclusivity, though, Be, because what happens here is that they're not just those who are just, yeah, well, just whoever now comes, they're those who join themselves to the Lord. They're, they're keeping Sabbaths. In other words, they're saying, this God really exists, and so we're going we're gonna to rest on this day because we think that's what he's commanded of us. This God really exists, so we're going to that place to worship him. Like, they're, they're not just those who are just, now we're included in the Lord. He's just called us fine. No, they're those who have joined the Lord, right? So it's, there's some inclusive exclusivity. Perhaps Ruth herself is, is symbolically pointing forward to that kind of day. Now, the author that I quoted earlier whose name I'm not sure I can pronounce, which probably means he's super smart. <laughs> Ruth moves revelation forward by narrative exegesis of legal instruction. In other words, even just her 
the, the take on Ruth might say, here's what we're doing with the law. Here's how it's being applied as we look forward and move towards the future of one who's going to come and deliver us from underneath the law by becoming a curse for us. Perhaps it's doing that in a complementary fashion to all the other scriptural advances like Isaiah 56. In other words, I think that maybe part of what Ruth is doing is symbolically saying, hey, there's hope for Moab coming. And it's actually in her. She didn't know it, right? It's coming. It's interesting and in Jesus' ministry, if we don't like exclusivity, that you're probably not going to like Jesus much. He makes the exclusivity of God very explicit. Not just anyone. If you want to come to the Father, you have to come through me. There's no other way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes apart from me. No one comes in any other way. There's no other way to come. And so the assembly of the Lord through Jesus is a very specific assembly. It's not just anyone is in that assembly. It's the in Christ ones that are in that assembly. Only through him. He is the way. And it's interesting then that after this happens, that one of the earliest converts after the resurrection is a foreign eunuch reading Isaiah. The gospel is that good. Moses moves from this exclusivity to uncleanness in the camp. Verse 9, when you are encamped against your enemies, you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. And if any man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal omission, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp, but when the evening comes, he shall bathe himself in the water, and as the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it, and you shall have a trowel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. Cleanness in the camp. We're, we're all in favor of that, right? It seems like, yep, yeah, it's a good idea. Do all those things that he has told you to do. And notice the reason why he does it. All right, there's all these explanations like, no, it's about hygiene and making sure that there's not airborne diseases and not... Yeah, that's not what Moses says. Right? Moses says, because the Lord, your God, walks in the midst of your camp. Because God is in your midst. Now, that's an encouraging thought to a people. He's, he's envisioning them encamping against the enemy. This is the army. The men are encamped. And they're, they're about to go and dispossess the people in the lands. That's what's being envisioned here. And he says to them, this is a shaky people, right? There's giants in the land. We're not sure we can take them. They have fortified cities, and we're supposed to go out and dispossess them just because God said to, and he says he's with us, and that he's going to deliver us, and all these things, but they're huge. And here's what he drops in here. God's in your midst. He's walking in your camp. You know, when he walks in their midst, he does that in the garden. It's, it's Edenic language. Again, in the promised land, as they're going out to dispossess the land, there's Edenic language dropped in the midst here because God is in their midst. And so he says, be careful, even with how you go to the bathroom, because he's walking around. And that sounds like a silly thought, but what an encouraging thought. For the armies of Israel, scared of the enemy, God's in your midst, so be careful with all that you do. And that's going to include a whole bunch of miscellaneous laws. Right? Starting in verse 15, we've moved from various laws at the beginning of 22 to these miscellaneous laws. The miscellaneous laws, quickly. Verse 15 and 16. Take care of how you treat slaves, you shouldn't. You shall not give up his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. 
He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. Careful with how you treat slaves. Again, God is in your midst. Verse 17 and 18, none of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. None of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. Not only is prostitution out, but uh, idolatry, which is connected here, that's also out. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God and payment for any vow. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. You shouldn't have this happen, shouldn't be letting it happen in your midst, and you shouldn't justify it happening by saying, but we're giving to the Lord. You say, no, this is not okay. You shouldn't justify this with some sort of offering. Verse 19, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brothers, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The, the promised land, this place that God is giving them is a place of abundance. And so generosity should rule the day for the people of Israel. They should be reflecting what God has given to them, that he has not only delivered them into the land, but made this land an abundant place that will produce plenty for them so that they should be able to lend to others without any hesitation. No need for interest. God has given us more than we need here. It's an abundant place. His goodness prevails. And so we should be able to rule this land and love one another with generosity. It reflects God. And I think that's what happens in verse 24. I'll skip 21 for a second. If you go to your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Again, there's, there's generosity. It's even provided for within the land. Like, you should be welcoming. Like, neighbors, hey, come on. If you're walking through, grab some grapes. Like, make sure you get some grain. Jesus and his disciples do this very thing. Like, they're just walking through. But be careful. Again, we're not greedy here. We're, we're, we're saying this is not mine. We're respecting one another. Back to 21. Another miscellaneous law. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what, what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. God's people are people who should be a people of integrity. Their, their words should match their lives. Their yes is to be their yes. Their no is to be their no. And so Moses here, he finishes 23, and, and at least for now, he puts the final nail in the miscellaneous laws of chapter 23, creating a, a fuller picture for us of what it looks like for Israel to be a holy people in the promised land. And we have to come to it with humility and say, like, this is not a picture that is entirely clear to us, that we entirely and fully understand. But we also see the clearer picture of the law in Jesus. Here's the one who's born under the law, who perfectly keeps the law. Apparently all these things Jesus knew how to keep perfectly and did. And where Israel and all of us have been people who have failed to be people of our word, failed to have the integrity to let our yes be yes and our no be no, Jesus is the one who not only fulfills the whole law, but he's the one who's the yes and the amen to all the promises of God. So here's God, the one who does keep every single promise, who does keep every single word, who fulfills every single part of it. All of his promises, all the fulfillment of the law, they find their end, they find their, their amen in Jesus. And what all the law has been pointing to finds its fulfillment, finds its summary in Jesus. And, and what James, he comes along in James chapter 2 and he says, those who fail at any point of the law, including any of these various laws and miscellaneous laws, are guilty of all of it. And so all of them, anyone who fails at any point, are guilty and deserve the judgment that the law requires. And that includes us, unless we're vitally connected to the one who's always kept his word. And that's Jesus. 
the one who fulfilled the whole law, so that we could say, if you don't belong to him, then, then you are now guilty of the entire law because you failed at some point. And one point makes you guilty of all of it. But if you're in him, then now all of a sudden, although you are guilty of the law and deserve the judgment that the law brings, now all of a sudden you're righteous in God's sight. Not because you created that righteousness, but because you received it from the one who is fully righteous, Jesus Christ himself. If that's you, right, we, we remember what Jesus has done. We, we celebrate his work on our behalf. We, we together take a meal of faith that says, I'm vitally connected to him. I'm in him so that when God looks at me, he could see all these sins that I'm deserving of, judgment from him for, but instead he sees Christ. He sees his righteousness. His body, his blood have now covered me, cleansed me, washed me, so I'm justified in him. If you're not in Jesus, you haven't trusted and believed in Jesus, this meal lacks all that meaning because you haven't given you yourself to him. And so he'd said, don't take this meal. Don't take it in a way that's vain. Instead, trust in Jesus. He is the perfect righteousness that you need, and he offers it to you freely if you would come and repent of your sins and believe in him. Let's bow in prayer as we prepare for this meal together. God, you are in our midst, and you say that you have sent your Holy Spirit down to this earth, Jesus, when you ascended into heaven to take the throne and that you dwell in all of your sons and daughters, and you see everything that we see, that we think, that we do, that we say, that we want. And we know that when we compare our actions and our lives and the desires of our hearts, we fall short of your holy standard. And there's no way that we can obey all of your commands, even if we're under the new covenant. You've given us commands, and we fall short. And so, Jesus, we celebrate you today for fulfilling the law for us and for becoming a curse on a tree so that we could be set free from the guilt of our sin and the judgment that we rightly deserve before your throne and so that we can stand before you and come before your throne boldly and hold our heads high and we stand in grace, as Paul said, not by our works. And so, Jesus, as we reflect on your death and your resurrection, we praise you for your mercy and for your grace. And God, we still know that you care how we live. Uh, fulfilling the law doesn't mean that you care less about how we live and what we do. And God, it should amaze us today that you care so deeply how we even treat birds and lost cows that you made that belong to our neighbor. You care about how we treat our neighbor's stuff, not because stuff matters so much, but because our neighbors matter so much. And so, uh, Jesus, I pray that we would seek to be holy in every way. And I, see, I ask that we would seek 
to find ways to apply your truth and to love our neighbor that we may not even be thinking of, Lord. Let us be others-focused like you are. Let us look to the needs of others more than we look to our own needs, Jesus. We want to be like you. You died for us. Help us live for your glory and for the good of others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.